If you don't know me, um, I'm Jason. That part I think Tim took care of. But I'm also the youth pastor. And so if you weren't here last week, I got to explain my hair. It's a youth group stunt. Um, so I, I normally look a little weird, but this is a little weirder. Um, and it's because of our youth group. They got to 50 kids three weeks ago. And for us, that was a benchmark. And so because of that, they got to mess with my hair. Here's what's scary. Then we had 54. Then we had 57. And if they get to 60, they get to mess with my beard. And so, like, you can put a hat on this, right? I don't know what I'm going to do. And so, um, I may be, if I'm up here next week with, like, pink beard, you're going to have to just be excited for the youth group, okay? So, what I want to do today, um, I want to share with you guys something that I learned as I was kind of studying this week. Um, I had a plan. I was going in one direction, and then I feel like God took us kind of in a different direction. Have you ever had that in life? You ever been like, I, I think I'm going this way, I think this is where God wants me to go, and then like you're on your way, and God goes, no, it's over here. That's how my study went this week. And so I just kind of want to share with you the things that I wrestled with during the week, and I, and I hope that it blesses you the way that it blesses me. One of the things that I discovered, did you know that Jesus never founded a church? Like, I mean, he founded the church, Big C Church. He never actually set up a church. He never went into a city and was like, you guys, here's a building, um, get started with your little group, go. Jesus never founded a church. That part's probably not a surprise. Did you know that Jesus closed a few, though? Jesus never founded a church, but he shut the doors on a couple of them. And I want to tell you guys the story of a church that Jesus had to close. So that's where I want to go today, is I want to focus in on the story of this church. But here's why I want you guys to pay attention. Here's why I think this matters for us. I think that if we're not careful, that could be our story. I think that if we're not careful, we could be that church. In fact, as I studied this church more and more, I got more and more nervous about my walk with Jesus. And I'm not saying that Life Community Church as a whole, is in danger, but I was, and you might be, and the next church you go to could be. And so this is important for us to, to pay attention to. And that was the epiphany for me, was that there, there are churches that Jesus shuts the doors on. There are communities of faith where he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this. And that was terrifying for me. I think that discovering that there is a way to do church, to do this Christian life that ends up with Jesus taking us out of it, scares me. And I want to know what that looks like. And so that's where I want to go today with this story of this church. And here, here's how this church story starts. It starts with the Apostle Paul. And if you don't know Paul, um, Paul was not one of the original disciples walking around with Jesus, but he had this amazing, transformative moment where Jesus interrupts his life. And because of that moment, he sets a course where he, his only goal is to spread the good news of Jesus as far and wide as he can. And so he becomes the um, most prolific church planter of all the apostles. And he goes around the whole Mediterranean and he's planting churches. And one of those churches, he stops at this city and we get a very brief glimpse. It's like he was, he was in and he was out. He stopped at the synagogue. He reasoned with the elders. He convinced them about Jesus. And then he's like, I got places to go, <laughs> right? And he leaves. 
But the cool thing for this church is that right on his heels, some very important people show up and help. So right after he leaves, this guy named Apollos shows up. And Apollos is another um, apostle in the sense that he was a church planter, right? And he, the Bible says that he had great knowledge of the scriptures and he had a love for the Lord. And so he comes in and he starts building up this church. But then there's this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, that are there too. And they must be giants in the faith because they see Apollos come in and they're like, you're doing so good, but we need to tweak something about how you understand Jesus, And so this church already, even in the early years, has had Paul, and then Apollos, and then Priscilla and Aquila come in, and then Paul comes back. And when Paul comes back, he spends three years with this church. Now, to put that into perspective, Jesus spent three years in his whole ministry, right, with the disciples. And so Paul focuses for three years on this church, and then he goes away, and then from prison, like 10 years later, he writes them a letter, and they literally, they get their own book of the Bible. Like, think about that for a minute. Imagine if we had, like, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, life community, right? Like, this church has got some things going for it. It's had Paul, and then Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, and then they've got Paul again for three years. Then they get their own book of the Bible, God-inspired words with their name on it. This is how your church should operate, from God. And then later in life, now this part's legend, but the more I studied it, the more I, I, it just makes a ton of sense. Later in life, the Apostle John ended up living in this city, calling this church his church home, and he died there. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John from this spot. This was after he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote Revelation, and his grave is actually outside of this city. But wherever John went, Mary, the mother of Jesus, went. Do you remember that? When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looked down and he said, John, would you take care of my mom? Would you treat her like she's your mom? And so wherever John went, Mary went. And so now think about you've got Paul and then all these other guys. You've got their own book of the Bible. Then you get John, the one whom Jesus loved, right? And then you get Mary. Imagine the wealth of information the people at this church had. If you had a question about what Jesus was like as a kid, you'd just go grab Mary, right? Like, hey, um... What was he like as a teenager? She's like, well, actually, he was a pain, like, right? <laughs> he was a teenager. I mean, that's the thing. So, um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Jesus was a sinless, perfect teenager, I'm sure. So, this was probably the most thoroughly instructed church in the early church, right? Think about, like, of all the big churches that we've got, like Saddleback or North Point or all that, like, I imagine, like, what's the one where, where John MacArthur's at out in California? right, that Grace Community Church, I imagine it's like that, like they've got a seminary in the back for if you want to go deeper. They've got so much going for them. How did that church, how did that church end up so far off course that Jesus in the book of Revelation has to threaten them with closing their doors? How's that even possible? How is it possible that from such a strong start, I mean, literally, the, the way that they started, if you looked in Acts 18, 19, what you would see is they were so excited about the Lord that they literally changed the economy of the city. And Ephesus was a big city, a, a metropolitan area, and so they were making idols, and there was temple worship, and there was such a change because of the gospel in this city 
that the idol worshipers and the idol makers went out of business. An entire industry goes out of business and they changed the economy. How do you go from that to less than 100 years later, they cease to exist? They have about a 45-year lifespan before this letter that we're going to read in Revelation where Jesus says, hey, I'm going to shut this down. And then less than 50 years later, they cease to exist. How is that possible? And a bigger question, are we anything like that church? When we study that church, do we see ourselves in it? That makes me nervous. So we're going to read today in Revelation chapter 2 about the book or the, the, the church at Ephesus. The Ephesians is who we're talking about. And so in Revelation chapter 2, it starts like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Did you catch that list? That's a good list, right? Did you know, like, he says, um, I, I noticed that you've, you've got these, the works going for you, like you're clearly doing the thing really well, right? And then um, you're, you're, you're toiling, you're not lazy, it's not like you guys are all just sitting back and watching the kingdom stuff happen. Everybody's involved, right? And then he says, you don't tolerate evil, right? You don't, you don't let wicked people, wicked and, and immoral people be involved. And, and I, I wonder, like, what if a church like that existed today? Wouldn't we be singing their praises? This sounds like a church that I want to go to, as a matter of fact. Sounds like a great church. It sounds like a church full of mature Christians. And if you've been around church long enough, you know that that's sort of a, a, a theme that we want to grow up. That from, from where we start, we want to grow. We want to become more mature, right? And we want to put behind us the sins that we used to deal with. And we want to get better at reading our Bible and, and church attendance. And we want to do all these things. And these guys were really killing it. They were rock stars, even at the end there, it says that they, they were uh, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Like they were loyal to Jesus in a time that was hard to be loyal. And they've not grown weary. They weren't worn out. And that's a good list. And listen, I've gone to a lot of churches. And I've been in some churches that had some bad theology. I've been in some churches where everybody lets the pastors or the pastor or the pastor's wife do all the work, and it pretty much is just chock full of lazy people. I've been in churches that have people that bail at the first moment that there's any adversity, right? The first sign of anything being hard and everybody bails. I've had some bad church experiences. How many of you guys have ever had a bad church experience? How many of you are having one right now? <laughs> it'll, it'll, it's like 30 more minutes, I promise. It'll be over. No, but seriously, if you've ever had a bad church experience, it's not because of something on this list, right? It's not because they had good theology or because they were hard workers or because they were loyal to Jesus. This is a place I'd want to go. How is it possible then 
that we get to verse 4 right after this where Jesus says this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And the lampstand thing is, is pretty clear, right? That a, a lamp is designed to give off light to the area that it's around. And this big church in this big city had a responsibility to its community. And Jesus is saying, if you don't straighten this out, I'm going to snuff out the fire. I'm going to take away your influence. I'm going to shut you down. And it happened. Fifty years or less from the moment that this was written, that church ceased to exist. How's that Possible. What, was, what, what he's saying here is there's something that is more important than all those amazing things. You're doing church so, so well, and yet there is something that is more important than that. Love. And you go, what? Like, that part seems easy. Like loving, pe- lo- loving things, lo- love is not that difficult. You don't want to know what's difficult is getting up every week on a Sunday morning and coming to church. You want to know what's difficult is getting my Bible read whenever I don't feel like it. Like, love seems like it's down on the list. And Jesus goes, there is literally nothing more important to me than your affection. And I think of a marriage. I could have all the markers of a good husband, right? I could could bring home enough money that we never have to worry about the bills. I could make sure that the, the house is always in good, good shape and it's not falling apart, right? I can make sure that the lawn is mowed. I can make sure I'm home every evening. I don't cheat on my wife. Um, the cars are maintained. I could do all of these things that on paper look like a good husband, but if I don't have affection and love for her, it's not a good marriage, Right? And what Jesus is saying here is it's possible to do church well or to trade a love for Jesus for a well-done Christian life. That's scary to me. That it's possible for us to be convinced by our well-lived life that we're pleasing Jesus and for him to come in and go, man, that's not it. That's not what I'm looking for. It's possible to have the behavior right but have our heart be cold. And Jesus isn't letting us get away with just getting our life in order or just getting our doctrine nailed down or even, for that matter, just getting the the sin and the morality problem in our life figured out. Here's what's scary. Jesus was upset with church people for doing church well. That's scary because I'm a church person. Some of you guys have been church people your whole life. And I'll bet you know how to do church well. I do. Take a deep breath in that moment where Jesus could possibly be upset with you even though you're a good church person. That scares me. What if, what if Jesus showed up on your best year? Now imagine, like, have you guys ever done the New Year's resolution thing where you're like, this year I'm going to read all the way through my Bible, right? Or this year I'm going to go to church three out of four times every month, or I'm going to give this year, or whatever. And imagine you make it till November and you're like, I am going to make it, right? Like, this is the first time in a decade that I have finally kept that resolution, right? And you're going to life group, and you're giving, and you're serving at the church, and you've signed up for a mission over to another country. you got all this stuff on your plate. And imagine in that victory, in, in that great year of your Christian life, if Jesus showed up and was like, if you don't straighten something out, I'm going to shut it down. 
That's what this was like. And I think that we give ourselves a lot of credit for the progress that we've made. We look back at our life and we go, wow, look at where I came from to where I am now. I'm doing this pretty well. And I'm sure the Ephesians did too, right? Like we burned books. We burned all of our, not books like Nazis burned books, but like all of our magic arts books and stuff. They literally took all their idol worship stuff and they burned it in a fire. And they're like, look at what we're doing. We're, we're just growing and growing. And, and Jesus gets to them in Revelation and goes, this isn't working, guys. So when he says, I want you to go back to the love you had at first, he's saying, I want you to have that affection for me that you had at the beginning. I, I, I care about the things that you're getting done. You're doing a good job, but I'm really way more interested in the fact that at the beginning, you loved me more. That matters. So what was that for the Ephesians? Why was that? Where, where did they start in their relationship with Jesus that they had all of this love? I want to take you guys to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to go through a passage that is honestly worth like a 10-week series, okay? 10 verses, we could do a, a verse a week. We're going to fly through it quicker on purpose because as theologically rich as it is and as fun as it would be to dive into the doctrine, literally the point of what he just said to them in Revelation is you can focus on the doctrine all day long and miss the point. So let's read this for the point. Why did the Ephesians start out with such strong love for Jesus? In Ephesians chapter 2, it starts like this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And when Paul writes this to the Ephesians, he could easily be writing that to you and you, life community, and you, John. We're dead in your trespasses and sins. That's where you started. Do you guys remember where you were when the gospel found you? Do you remember? I do. Now, um, here's, I'm going to give you guys my, my story. I began this Christian walk in a Christian home, right? And I would, I would say at the beginning of my life, it was probably like pseudo-Christian. Like, we were Christians, but we didn't go to church. And sometime around when I was like 10 years old, we started going to church. And I remember around that same time getting saved. I remember being in my, uh, my living room uh, in front of the couch with my parents and giving my life to Jesus, and I think it stuck, okay? You guys know, like, as kids, sometimes it's like, I think maybe we should reinforce this, right? And so, for me, I think it stuck, and, and I remember being uh, through middle school and high school, really being on fire for Jesus, serving in our youth group, but here's the thing. I was a pretty good kid, and so I got a pretty long leash, and the more freedom I got, the more distance I put between me and Jesus. So that by the time I was a young man, out of my parents' house, 
I had gotten into some things that were um, really bad for me, right? And one of them was street racing. <laughs> and you think like Fast and Furious, okay? Like that explains the hair, like bright cars, loud noises, dumb kids, right? That was, that was the world that I lived in. Um, and, but along with the street racing came the party scene, right? And adults look at me. You know what that comes with, right? I was drinking too much. I was doing things that I shouldn't be doing with people I shouldn't be doing it with. And all that partying and that lifestyle got more and more destructive. And it spiraled to the point that my decisions weren't just damaging me. It got to the point that, that my decisions were, were hurting other people, right? And I'd love to talk to you guys about this one-on-one -on -one if you need any details. But it got to the point that I made decisions that changed other people's lives forever. That I, I was hurting somebody else in ways that couldn't necessarily be fixed. That's a dark place when you're that person. That's a, that's a hard place to be in when you're the one who's causing the damage, right? And so my first immediate response to that was to just really dive into that lifestyle and swim in it, right? And so for a couple months after this really hard moment whenever I was really hurting other people, I just was like just completely dead in my sin. Now, I know that we could argue theologically about like, okay, but you already knew Jesus. Yes, I believe that I already knew Jesus, but that was where the gospel found me. That's where it clicked, right? That's where it, it made sense to me that like, this is what death looks like. And when it says dead in trespasses, and sins. You guys understand what, what sins are, right? If you've never heard this expression, it's, it's kind of like a dartboard, and the bullseye is God's character. And you've got a handful of darts, and your job, your goal is to try to hit the bullseye, to act like God and in his character. And you could get really close. You could hit it nine out of ten times and miss it with one, and you would still miss the mark. Sin is missing the mark of God's character. Trespasses are the willful going over a line, right? Think about trespassing. You're jumping a fence, right? So, like, I think, uh, I used to golf, right? And I say used to because I've got kids now. So, if, if parents, if you know what I mean, like, it just, like, your world changes when you've got kids, right? I used to golf, and I remember early in my, my learning about golf that I discovered um, that you're not supposed to drive a golf cart up on the green. Like, like, I, I'm, I don't know, it's new to me, right? And so I, I park it kind of one wheel up on the green and everybody with me is like, whoa, that's a golf sin, right? I didn't know, but it was still wrong. It's real easy to do that when we're sinning, right? Now, I've got another story on a golf course. I got arrested for driving somebody else's car on a golf course at night without a driver's license, Okay, the street racing here, is it all clicking for you guys, right? Now, that was a trespass, 
you understand the difference, right? I knew better in that moment. And you guys, we were all dead in both. The things that we've done accidentally and the things that we've done on purpose. That's where the gospel found me. Where did the gospel find you? Where were you when it sunk in? Now, while it's important for us to understand what it was like to be dead in our sin, right? And, and in fact, it is important for you to get it because dead men do nothing for themselves, right? They can't actually fix they're dead. You can't do anything about that, right? And so it's important for us to wrap our head around that, but the cool thing is we're coming up on the rest of this story. In fact, this is probably my favorite, but don't tell my wife, okay? But like verse four goes like this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And I love this, you guys. This is my story. And this is your story. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is your story. And if you haven't yet, this could be your story that you were dead, you were, imagine Jesus walking up to your casket, reaching in and grabbing you by the hand and saying, come out of there and be alive. And he says, but God wouldn't leave you there. You were dead. You were separate from God, right? That idea of being dead in our sin, obviously people were walking around but they were eternally separated from a God that created them and loved them and had purpose and plan for them. And they could do nothing about it. That was your story. And Jesus reached into that moment and he said, come to life. He did it. That's where the gospel found you. But that's not where God left you either. Let's keep going. Verse 6. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I love that he said, I, I, I'm not just pulling you out of death to life so that you could just be alive. I want you to be with me. Think about that for a minute. Like, I would have probably just been happy with, like, can I just not be dead? <laughs> can you just get me out of this mess? And he goes, yeah, I'm happy to get you out of this mess, but I want you out of this mess so that you can be with me. Come have a seat with me. And I'm like, but did you see the, the dead part? Did you see what you just pulled me out of? Do you see what's wrong with me? You don't want to be around me. And he goes, oh, you have no idea how much I want to be around you. Come sit with me. And then if we could retranslate verse 7. Look, I'm prepared, you guys. If we could retranslate verse 7, I don't think it would be too much of a stretch. 
It says this, right? It says, so in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, not in the coming years, not in the coming hundred years or decade, right? But in all of the ages to come, I think if we retranslated it, it could easily say, it's going to take me eternity to show you how much I love you. I'm never going to run out. I'm never going to run out of more love for you. I need you to come be with me so that for eternity I can keep showing you more and more how much I love you. Think about that for a minute. That you were dead and could do nothing about it, deserved nothing different, and yet Jesus says, I'm going to bring you to myself so that forever I can show you how much I love you. Let that sink in for a minute. And then we get to the, the Magna Carta of our faith. The next two or three verses, if you don't have them memorized, you should go memorize them. This is the stuff that people put in their brain for a reason, right? Because this is the stuff that makes all the difference in our faith. Verse 8 goes like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. You did nothing to earn it. Nothing. You were dead. I was dead. Dead people don't do things for themselves, do they? Jesus does. Jesus brings life to death. And I think that he, he does this, he says this, he articulates this in a way not to make us feel bad or to put us down. It's not like he's not impressed with you. It's not like you need to be, take a seat. I think it's so we can fully see what he's done for us. Right? We have no option but to respond with love and affection if this really soaks in. If it really sinks into you that you could do nothing and he did everything just so that he could spend eternity loving you, despite the mess, despite the death, despite the sin, that should wreck you. In fact, that should constantly wreck you. I know a lot of people that want to go deeper in our faith after they become a Christian. They've, they've heard the gospel. Like, okay, I've heard this. Take me deeper. Show me something else. Deeper isn't possible. This is the deep end, people. This should constantly wreck you. And your response is love and affection. And if that wasn't enough, there's still another verse, you guys. And if you haven't memorized this one, just get all three of them together, okay? Eight, nine, and ten. Work on that. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And right at the beginning, this word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our word poem from. You are God's poem. Now, I'm not really into poetry. I'm not that guy. But I know 
that when a poet puts pen to paper, the purpose is for a unique and creative expression of themselves. You are God's artwork. That's literally what this says. That you have been designed in a unique and special way to reflect him in the way that only you can. You're his artwork. And I love this because a lot of artwork ends up in museums gathering dust. And he said, I didn't just make you to be a beautiful expression of myself to be put on a shelf somewhere. The purpose of your design, the purpose of your artwork, the purpose of me in you is for good works which I created ahead of time for you. Did you notice the order in which everything came here? You were dead, you could do nothing about it. He did everything about it. Brought you back to life to show you how much he loves you. And after that has soaked in, we respond with good works. We don't work our way into God's good grace. We don't work our way into pleasing Jesus. He pulled you out of the grave to show you how pleased he is with you. We respond with works that he's created for us. And I love this because when he says, I made you unique and special and artistic, and I made works just for you, you know what that tells me? Every one of you is called by God. Every one of you has a purpose. And I think a lot of times we waste large portions of our life feeling purposeless. Did you know that God saved you and by his grace gave you a purpose, a calling. And for each of us, that's different, and that's a different message for us to, to go into. But here's the trap. I think it's real easy for us to do the works, to get the life figured out, to live the Christian life, to start checking the boxes, and to abandon our love and affection for God. Remember, that's where we started with this Ephesian church. This was how their love for Jesus was built. But it didn't take very long for them to get to the point that they were just working on the stuff. They were just working on verse 10. The works, the doing. And I wonder in our life, how many of us have a long church history? Five years, 10 years, 50 years. And we've gotten to the point that a well-lived Christian life is our goal. And we've abandoned our love for him. And we read things like the gospel in Ephesians, and it just doesn't do anything to us anymore. It doesn't, I don't feel it anymore. I want to invite Pastor Winston to, to head up. Um, a lot of times toward the end of a message, we have like a, a response time. We want you to stand up and worship or or we want you to, to come down front in prayer. And, and a lot of times a message ends with what we want you to do, right? I'm not going to ask you today how your church attendance is. I'm not going to ask you today to do a better job reading your Bible. I'm not going to ask you to give or serve. But how's your affection for God? How's your love? him how impacted are you by the gospel your story 
where Jesus met you. Take a moment and, and remember where you were when the gospel found you. Now, maybe you were young like I was the first time. And my guess is that you've still got a story like mine where there was a point where it actually really made sense. There was a point when the gospel wrecked you. Take a moment and hold that in your mind. Where were you when the gospel found you? How did you feel in those days? How'd you feel about God? Has your love grown cold? If Jesus were to walk in right now, would he go, man, your Christian life's rocking it. But I don't think you love me like you used to. Winston's gonna sing a song over us. I don't want you to stand up. You're welcome to sing if you'd like to, but here's what I wanna do for the next few minutes. I just want you to examine your heart. Has your love for Jesus grown cold? All right, so, um, so maybe you're like me and you spend those few moments and you go, yeah, actually, I think I, think I, I have kind of lost that. I think maybe my love for Jesus is growing cold. What do we do about that? So if you remember where we started, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus told them what to do about it. Remember, he saw the Ephesian church and all the things they had done, but their love had grown cold. And that was breaking his heart, and he told them how to deal with it. Let's look at it one more time. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. And the first thing we can do is to remember, to actually spend time dwelling on the truth that the gospel found me. Spend some time in that. Feel that again. And if that means remembering what you came from, I know a lot of us are like, I really don't want to go there. Maybe you need to go there so that you can be reminded what it felt like to be pulled out of it. Don't go there to feel guilty. But remember what the gospel did for you. Remember, and then he says, repent. If you don't know what repentance is, repentance means to willfully choose to go another direction. You say, I recognize the way that I am going is wrong. I'll go this way instead. And in this case, what I need to repent of, what the Ephesian church needed to repent of, is putting a well-lived Christian life as my target and letting my love for Jesus take a second place. Remember why you loved him so much. Repent of replacing that with anything else. 
and do the works you did at first. Repeat. Do you remember what it felt like at first? When, when Jesus first made an impact in your life, what was your prayer life like? How did you talk to him? How did you worship? What was it like when you opened the Bible expecting that this God that loved you so much was going to reveal himself to you? How did you talk about him to people around you? Do those things again. Remember, repent, repeat. As many times as we need to until we see him again. Because God forbid we get to the point that we do see him and he goes, I mean, good job with the church checklist thing. But I miss you. I wish you'd have loved me. Remember, repent, repeat over and over until we see him again. And listen, if you're here and you have no idea what this feels like, Maybe today's the day that the gospel finds you. There's a lot of things that are hard to answer. There's a lot of questions about the Christian life, and we can wrestle with those things, but this thing is not that hard to figure out. God loves you. And he wants to spend eternity proving it to you, but he's got to pull you out of death and into life first. Would you put your trust in him? A lot of times that goes with a prayer, and I, I can give you an example prayer, but the prayer is not what saves you. Your trust in him saves you. And so for today, if it's new or if it needs to be renewed, you could pray something like this. Jesus, I need you to pull me out of death and into life. I trust what you did for me on the cross. I'm a sinner, and I couldn't do anything about it. I'm so glad you did could I be part of your family? I'm going to make you my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that for the first time today, um, I'm going to hang out down here by the stage. I'd love for you to come tell me about it. We have a resource we'd like to connect you with, um, and I want to make sure that as a church we can support you in this. But for the rest of us, let me pray over you, pray with you, that the gospel would wreck you today and always. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us. We couldn't. Thank you. But we are so sorry that we have put anything else in front of our love for you, our affection for you. We lay that stuff down. We're, we're sorry and we want to walk away from that lifestyle. Help us to turn into loving you better. And I believe wholeheartedly that the good works will flow out as a response to that. Help us keep our eyes on the thing that is most important. You. I pray that over my friends. Help us to have a great week loving you better than we did last week. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now, um, I said this last time I was up here. Um, I would like to do this every time I preach. The church may now leave the building.